Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. I'm Sam DeCanio. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy and the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society. Today, we're very happy to be joined by John Myers. John is co-founder of both London YIMBY and YIMBY Alliance, organizations that discuss new ways to address the London housing crisis and the housing crisis more generally. Um, John, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be on. So to begin with, um, let me just ask, what what is the London cri- housing crisis and how bad is it? It's really bad. I mean, you know, we have incredibly expensive housing. So in 2002, London homes were about seven times average earnings. Um, and in 2018, they were 13 times average earnings. But then if you go further back in the 1930s, you had the working class, clerks, workmen, just buying semi-detached houses with gardens within walking distance of a tube station in London. You know, we have never got back to that level of affordability. And, and I think it's probably important to distinguish two things. So on the one hand, you can have low wages causing a housing affordability problem. On the other hand, you can have high house prices. Um, I'm not sure there's anything we could do to radically raise average wages, but we could easily build lots more homes and reduce prices. Um, I can expand a bit more on that if you'd like. So the the economic literature tends to focus on the amount by which house prices exceed the cost of construction. Um, There's a recent paper by Ed Glazer and Joe Gyorko, which showed that in cities which build plenty of housing, even if the population is growing rapidly, the price doesn't rise. And and so there are vast swathes of London um, with house prices above £500 per square foot. And if you build housing housing at scale, you can build for about half of that cost. Um, and there are many areas of London which are getting up to around £1,000 a square foot, and some of inner London is, is far above that. So from an economics perspective, allowing lots more construction would radically reduce house prices. Um, and there are some Office for National Statistics numbers showing that across the country as a whole, the total value of the housing stock, if you add up the house price of every house in the country, um, exceeds the cost of rebuilding those houses by four trillion pounds, right? Which is something like two-fifths of the entire net worth of the United Kingdom. So we have this astonishing shortage of homes. Interesting. Um, So homes have not become necessarily more expensive or more or technologically different than they were a hundred years ago it's it's bricks mortar um the technology seems to be staying fairly the same um and at the same time wages in london have been going up mm-hmm. as well and yet the housing situation is getting worse given both of these conditions um why is that the case? So why aren't markets responding to these incredible increases in house prices? Why has it been so difficult to get home construction to respond to these signals in the way that markets normally respond to to, incre- to goods becoming more expensive? It's a great question. And just to put it in perspective, could I say, first of all, that let's, you know, thinking back to 100 years ago, um, a car cost roughly the same as a house. And when you think of the radical Mm. improvements in car technology and affordability of cars, especially once you adjust for quality over that time, housing should be even more affordable than it was back then, whereas in fact it's gone completely into reverse, notwithstanding, as you say, the massive increase in average incomes. Um, Fundamentally, we are not planning for enough houses. The, The current planning system does not plan for anywhere near enough houses to meet demand. And that means there's an insufficient supply, and so house prices have rocketed. So, and when you say that we're not planning for enough houses, you're referring to political. Th- these are political plans that are set, or are you referring to market actors? Well, we we introduced um, a new planning system back in 1947, which has been tweaked several times since then. Um, but fen- fundamentally, we've retained the principle ever since 1947 that you need a discretionary permission from the state in order to be able to build a home in in England, mm-hmm. and um, the political process behind giving those permissions have never enabled us to give enough permissions to build enough housing. And so the scarce thing is the planning permission. So even in the London area, if you have a plot of land which has no hope of ever getting planning permission, it's not worth very much. Whereas if you take an acre of land anywhere in the southeast and give it planning permission for housing, you will increase the value to millions of pounds. Mm -hmm. Is this problem especially acute in London relative to other cities? 
Um, it, it's most acute in Oxford, Cambridge and London in the UK. So the, the, the most acute problem in terms of the excess of house prices over what it would cost to build more houses is worst in the southeast of England. And, and that's meant that you've seen incredible patterns of people commuting very long distances, you know, sometimes up to two hours, into jobs in London or Oxford and Cambridge just to be able to get to a job that they want to do. Does that have secondary effects on the economy? I mean, I'm, the, the London um, is sort of a center of, of, of uh, productive capacity for the UK, and you're essentially disincentivizing people to, to move here by making these commutes so difficult and so long. It's got massive effects on the economy. You know, it's got massive effects on a whole range of things. So it's got obvious massive effects on sort of injustice and access to opportunity. But to answer your specific question about the economy, um, first of all, what it means is that people... Uh, growing up, say, in my hometown back in Lancashire, who'd like to work in a job in London which may have better skills training, may have um, better pay, can't do that because we just haven't built enough homes in the London area. Now, that has two effects. First of all, it means those people don't see their wages rise, um, whereas they could have in, in earlier times. You know, Labour mobility has gone down a lot, as the Resolution Foundation showed in a report last week. Um, but also it means there's probably a surplus of workers back in that town. So you've got a surplus of workers and a fixed amount of jobs effectively, and so wages are depressed in the regions which already have a problem. And so rather than rebalancing the economy sort of away from London, as was the original intention of the planning system, we've got this completely counterproductive system where we're pushing down wages away from London and we're depressing average wages across the country as a whole. And does... Do these problems have distributional effects as well? So I, w I would imagine that there would be certain certain groups within uh, within society, and specifically certain economic groups, that would be disproportionately harmed by by the by these trends. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it tends to affect most adversely those on lower incomes, um, those with lower skills, the young who can't move to opportunity. Um, Matt Ronley at MIT did a study showing that a lot of the um, increase in inequality that Piketty showed in his book was in fact due to rising ha home prices. Uh, you know, so, so there's a massive distributional impact. Here. And so, so how would that work? How would the inequality that Piketty is documenting? What? what how, how do home prices figure into that? Is, is it an an issue with inheritance and families being able to pass homes down to subsequent generations? Um, I'd have to go back and check the mechanism. But if effectively, what's generally happening is that you know, um, as um, Older cohorts have tended to be able to buy more housing than younger cohorts at equivalent stages of their life. And so the massive inflation in house prices has benefited those older homeowners at the expense of young people who then have to pay much higher rents than they would have had to in a, in a much better system, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So, I mean, this, this sounds just horrible from a... From an, from a from, a, from anybody that cares about inequality, this sounds like a sort of a worst case scenario. You're penalizing the people with the fewest resources. You're penalizing people that are that are young, um, and and the the resource that's being handed down or inherited is is not. You can't even make the argument that that there's some sort of benefit in terms of it being sort of a productive investment in in equities or something. This is just a fixed resource that is. Not adding anything into the economy. Yeah, it's 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 a complete nightmare. Um, not only from a productivity perspective, but from a distribution perspective. And you know, so you go back in history. You look at so um, England actually had something called the Statute of Labourers of 1351, if I recall, which um, after the Black Death, population dropped, and so um, there was a lot of pressure, uh, shortage of workers, and so the income these workers could command tended to increase. And so the aristocracy went to the king and said, "We're not happy. Our workers are kicking up a fuss. Can you please do something?" And so the Statute of Labourers actually says labourers are not supposed to move to, to another job, they're not supposed to move around the country, and supposed to stick at their original wages. So this is sort of the, the 21st century analogy of that, if you like, in, in a much more sort of clever and concealed way, but it's effectively achieving the same thing. Um, and then there are other examples around the world. So um, revolutionary, pre-revolutionary France, the peasants, uh, as I understand it, were prevented from moving around. Um, Soviet Russia had a similar system. And uh, there's a Hukou certificate in China where you have the certificate of your original residence, and that makes it hard to move to a city and obtain services there. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty grim. Um, <laughs> that sounds pretty grim. I, I I suppose the the question sort of naturally arises, which is how has this happened? How and why has this happened? So unlike these prior societies that you've mentioned, 
Um, the, the UK is a democracy. We have elected officials that can make political decisions, that can influence the society. Um, if the effects of the crisis are to replicate um, authoritarian political systems and these sort of pre-modern societies that are dealing with nat natural disasters, why hasn't the political system responded to to, to the crisis and and um, in a way that sort of limits these distributional inequalities that are that are being generated? Well, it's even worse than that because we actually it is currently express government policy for house prices to go up. You know, I mean that's 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 written down in the terms of reference for the Letman Review. Um, so, and if you sort of delve into the details of why that is. Um, we have only anecdotal evidence here in sort of private interviews, but you know, government tends to be aware that rising house prices raise consumer confidence because homeowners are two thirds of voters in this country, and they are also aware that higher consumer confidence makes it more likely that the incumbent government will get re-elected. So there's a lot of pressure for governments to keep the majority of voters happy. We have, in essence. Um, I mean, Gordon Tullock talked about this transitional gains trap, where you have with taxi medallions, for example, where um, they, if you artificially restrict the, the number of taxi medallions, then the, the price balloons. Um, and, uh, and the problem then is if you want to deregulate or change the system to a more efficient and fairer system, you may have people who own the taxi medallions, but they're not the people who originally benefited from most of the uplifting prices. And so the losers, if you strip the system away, are not the people who originally benefited from, from this unnecessary restriction. And so, so you have all of these incredible political problems which are made worse by the fact that, that two-thirds of the voters are homeowners. Does that make sense? So two-thirds of the voters voters are homeowners. Um, I would also still think, though, that you would have considerable numbers of voters that, that are renters, that yes. don't own their homes, yes. that are being harmed by this. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not so, so why aren't, why aren't they, why aren't, why aren't they mobilizing and placing pressure on, on the political system? Why is the political system focused on, um, maintaining the position of people that currently own homes and not focused on, um, on the very large group of people that, that don't own homes, they're being prevented from owning homes? I mean, it's, it's a totally fascinating question. Um, one aspect of it, I think, is that the current system actually makes the Olsonian challenges that renters face in organising themselves much harder, because the way it works currently is that you generally grant a single discretionary permission on a single site, and so um, the residents surrounding that site tend to get very upset about losing their sunlight, losing their daylight, congestion, the way it's going to look, um, you know, pressure on their local schools, wrong kind of people, quote unquote, and that whole phrase, um, moving into the market, into the, into the area. And so th they find it quite easy to get organised. You know, their, their incentives are very local and it's going to affect their house price. Whereas the renters who may be helped by this single building, um, they're, they're sort of spread across the country. They don't even know they're going to move into it. They don't even know it's going to exist. And so they have incredible challenges in, in sort of coming together and organising in favour of that. Now, renters obviously do organise at a national level. You have Generation Rent, um, which is doing great work. They tend to focus, I think, mainly on the things which are most salient to them. And so they will campaign often for things like rent control and they'll support more supply. But it's not necessarily something that your typical renter thinks, this is what I absolutely need. I absolutely need to kind of go and reform planning legislation and get more houses built in Slough or wherever. And even if they wanted to, it would be difficult for them to coordinate with other similar people exactly. just because they're geographically dispersed exactly. in ways that, that homeowners are not. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a more general point, which is that um, urban land use regulation turns out to be quite a difficult thing to do as as more people have become homeowners. Um, so, you know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, you were talking more like 10% homeownership. Hmm. Um as more people have become homeowners, they're much more concerned about their house price, and then as house prices go up, it becomes a greater and greater fraction of their net worth, until in many cases, the, the value of the house itself is actually more than their net worth because of the mortgage. Um, and so they're extremely focused on anything that might jeopardise that, so they're very risk-averse. And so coming up with regulations that sort of address all of these concerns um, to counter not only the sort of national kind of urge to raise house prices, but also the very local concerns about the externalities that new, developer gen new development is generating is, is quite tricky, I think. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that people are, are heavily invested in their homes. Mm -hmm. um, what would happen to these people if the housing crisis were somehow solved? And the result of that was the construction of a large amount of housing 
that led to prices beginning to fall in areas like London. So you've got a situation where people have essentially invested, in many instances, they've invested their pensions into the value of their home. Um, and any solution, any, any actual effective solution to the housing crisis would cause home prices to begin to fall. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as being a situation that, for political reasons, would become quite untenable. Well, you've just spelled out one of the challenges. And you know, we're not campaigning to crash house prices overnight. Um, that would be unhealthy and, and probably counterproductive on a whole range of different levels. Um, but you know, there are things that you can do to bring many homeowners along with you. So um, William Rikers, I'm sure you know much better than I do, uh, wrote about Herasthetic, where you sort of design policies, you design your reforms in order to bring a coalition of voters together and get a majority behind your reform. And so and given that there's this two-thirds majority of homeowners, we think the only way to really get change is to come up with reforms that will make most of them, or at least a big fraction of them, happy. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that if that's helpful. So reforms that would make them happy but would not wind up stabilizing house price increases or cause home prices to begin to decline. Exactly. Well, uh, what, I'm not saying you can't have them decline over time. So, first of all, you have to distinguish between the price of the plot of land that a single mm -hmm. homeowner is sitting on right now and the price per home, which, if you increase the density, for example, can be very different. So, most of London is um, relatively unremarkable two-storey dwellings. That, in, fact, in fact, half of the homes in London are in buildings of only one or two floors. So, if you look at a map of London by built density, by cubic volume of building per acre, then huge swathes of it are literally have literally a tenth or a fifth of their housing per acre of sort of the pretty parts in the middle that people travel around the world to see, like Bloomsbury or Covent Garden um, or, or Pimlico, for example. So you know, it, there are plenty of ways to add lots more homes on, on a given area of land. You may make the original landowner better off than that, but you're making each individual home vastly more affordable. Essentially, by increasing the number of stories, increasing the density of the homes exactly. that are built on a given plot, and of land. whether you're extending upwards to, you know, let's face it, the Elizabethan's built at six stories high. It's not like it's the end of the world if you go mm -hmm. to six stories. I mean, many of the most beautiful cities in the world have five or six stories. Walk around Rome, Venice, millions of people do. In fact, so many people love the five or six stories of Rome and Venice that the locals complain about too many tourists. So it's not mm -hmm. it's not as if it's a disaster here. Um, yeah, if you do that, uh, and you can also fill in the gaps between houses if they're attached. I mean, in many cases, some of these streets are wider than they need to be, and um, what was originally a front garden has been paved over and covered with concrete for parking. So th you could have a garage with housing on top of that. There are masses of ways to increase the built volume, while actually, frankly, in many cases, making the street look better. So why isn't that happening? That's, that seems as though it's a, it's a straightforward solution to a problem that would potentially increase the value of the plot of land that currently exists. Why, why aren't more people interested in doing well, this? Well, they're interested in doing it. It's just extremely hard under the current system. So there's one example in Primrose Hill um, where uh, a group of homeowners got together and applied to the council to add another story onto each of their houses um, in a conservation area, I would add, and um, they eventually got permission. Um, they had overwhelming support from their neighbours, and the end result was a much more uniform and attractive um, set of Victorian terraces than the sort of higgledy-piggledy mess that you had on the roof line before they did this. Now, it took them literally five years to get planning permission for this, and not only did it take them five years, it took them hundreds of pages of application, um, and the council required not only that they all agree to do it, but that they all do it simultaneously. Right Now, th that just obviously spells out enormous problems of coordination. And frankly, the, you know, the, the leader of that particular group was the person who founded the architectural practice that the, cu the current president of RIBA is from. So clearly a sort of very motivated entrepreneurial individual. It is very tough to achieve in this system. Is is that uh, is the, is the experience of this of this this block is that being used to sort of uh, as a model for for subsequent action? Are people trying to learn from this and try and try to simplify the trying to simplify the process for getting these applications through? Well, that's absolutely what we're trying to encourage to make happen. You know, I mean, if you look at the history of the way London developed, look at how Hampstead developed or Covent Garden or many other places that people love, it didn't all happen at once. You know, people mm -hmm. added bits over time. It's not the end of the world if you have a slightly higgledy-piggledy roof line for a while um, because given that the pressures, the economic pressures to build are so great, if you give somebody permission to add another story and you set a design code so you know it's going to match what 
what, what, what the adjacent houses look like, you can be confident they'll do it eventually. So, so relaxing that requirement that it all be done at once is one obvious answer. You know, does it all really have to be unanimous? Is it the mm-hmm. end of the world if your neighbour adds another story um, and you get permission to, even if you weren't that happy about getting permission? Probably not, because it's actually going to increase your house value. So maybe we could have some sort of voting mechanism, a supermajority voting mechanism, say two-thirds, if you know, we could have a policy that if two-thirds of people on the street vote um, to set a design code and give themselves permissions for extensions, why shouldn't that be granted? Um, so so th- we're pushing for that. We've got a lot of sympathetic um, people in various parts of government and, and other interest groups. It just takes quite a while um, to get these sorts of changes through. How would you respond to somebody that lived in one of these neighborhoods that was interested in doing this, that was concerned that the that the new build was going to alter the historic character of the neighborhood? So one one thing that I think is apparent to anybody that, that looks at a lot of the new construction that's going on in London and elsewhere is that a lot of the buildings that are being erected um, are, are just not not that nice to look at. They're yeah. these sort of these, these glass hyper-modern um, designs that maybe some architect thinks is in, are, are interesting. But most people, if you, look at, if you look at the public opinion surveys that have been done of what people want in a home, they don't like the, the sort of the hyper-modern which, the designs that seem so homogeneous and so, so, uh, so they're present everywhere and nobody really wants these, these buildings to, to exist in their neighborhood. So how would you respond to somebody that was concerned about you know, trans- transforming their beautiful Georgian neighborhood with, with some new building that they, they didn't want. So I, I don't want to get into the style battles per se, and I will note that if you look at back at 400 years of house building in, in Britain, at every stage there are people complaining yeah. about these horrible newfangled housing. And for example, if it, the, the Nash terraces on Regent's Park are covered with white render, not least because the bricks were so cheap and it was such a low design, low build quality um, that they just wanted to hide it. Um, but if you give local people the control to set a design code, to mm-hmm. set, you know, even if they want to set precise materials, they can even set precise locations of windows if they want to. Um, they will be much more reassured that they can get, they will get what they want to get. Part of the other problem of the current system is that, you know, so back when um, prices were more approximate, were more in line with construction costs, you had a pretty strong incentive to make sure that the facade of your building called out, "This is a great building. You know, come and come and use me, come and rent me, come and." do custom in me um when most of the value of the building is just the permission for the building to exist um the sort of signaling value of that facade is not necessarily so high you can literally build a concrete box and you can be confident based on prior performance that it will keep on going up in value forever so there's much less incentive um for people to 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 invest in that facade um because the facades are the cheap bit frankly it's not not that expensive to do a a good-looking facade um and, and then the other, the other problem is we have much less um, house building driven by individuals these days. So we have much less um, self-build, much less um, homeowner commissioned housing than most of the other countries of Europe. And we have far less than we had as a historic basis. So these mm-hmm. 1930s houses that I'm ta- I was talking about, um, you know, very often they were sort of, the, the builder would come to you as a customer, they'd show you a book of designs and you could pick out the you know the particular designs that you wanted, and that's why we have swathes of mock Tudor across parts of London. That may not be to your particular taste, but it was it made the people happy at the time, um, and that in itself was a, partly a reaction to the sort of uh, to the sort of very um, austere neo-Georgian corporation housing that they were trying to get away from. So you know, horses for courses, but it's undoubtedly true that if you invest more in getting a high quality design you'll get better outcomes and we think the obvious way to do that is to give more local people more of a say to decide what they're happy with and have the power to give permission if it meets those criteria so so if if the companies that are doing that are constructing uh, new homes are not as responsive to sort of individual purchasers now who are they responsive to what um, are the pressures that are operating upon them well sorry i'm not saying it's not that they're not responsive to individual purchases, but um, individual purchases will overwhelmingly... Uh, it, it depends kind of where in the country you're talking about. Now, if you're talking about um, flats and high-rise in London, that's that's one market. If you're talking about um, houses, uh, a new housing development somewhere in the countryside and in the commuter belt, that's a different criterion. Very often people's primary focus is space. 
Um, you know, they'll they'll care about view. They'll, they'll care about a few other things, but the, the things inside the dwelling are the things that they care about most. Mm-hmm. Um, and the external facade is not necessarily so much of an issue. It's more of an issue for the pre-existing neighbours who care that their fields suddenly be built on, or that they've suddenly been overshadowed overshadowed by a skyscraper. Um, so it's not necessarily that they're not reflecting what the customers want. Uh, it's just the customers aren't prioritising the facade. Gotcha. Okay. And also, by the way, there are regulatory reasons why, um, for, why the windows may be smaller than, than perhaps the customers might want, um, and also uh, why you might not be able to have steps up to an entrance for, for you know, understandable reasons about accessibility for wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of things that we used to do historically aren't necessarily as easy to do as they used to be. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, foreign ownership of apartments and homes in in London. So one of the one of the frequent explanations that you hear uh, given for why the crisis uh, is as bad as it is is that people complain that there are you know there are these extremely wealthy uh, global elites that are sort of com- is coming into London and purchasing purchasing homes, oftentimes uh, masked by limited liability corporations. Um, to what extent is the crisis being influenced by foreign property ownership? Okay, so well, you asked about influence, and, and so, so there are two angles to that. So influence in terms of um, to what extent is it uh, encouraging people to object to housing? There's no doubt that it is having an impact there. People complain about foreign ownership. They see mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole question of homes for whom. Um, and so it do, it's, not, it's not necessarily helpful from a political perspective in terms of getting support for more housing. Um, if you go and look at the underlying numbers, so the Mayor of London commissioned a study which came back in 2017 done by the LSE, um, where they said they referred to um, data showing that um, foreign buyers only account for about 13% of purchases of new homes overall. Now, if you look at parts of the centre of London, in some developments it can be as much as 50%, so that's clearly much more significant. Um, But they still found that um, of those purchases, 70% were for buy-to-let. So ultimately they were going to be lived in by somebody who wanted to live in London. And so there might be a problem about who gets the capital appreciation from the perspective of a sort of, you know, someone who wants to protect Londoners, but that dwelling is nonetheless being used. And they also found that the flood of foreign capital had had a net additional effect on providing homes for London, net of everything. So their conclusion was that foreign investment was beneficial from that perspective. And so so how does that work? How, how would foreign investment in housing in London actually increase the stock of, of homes available for people? Well, one mechanism is that there is a set of, a set of brownfield sites around London which are uneconomic, often because they've been polluted in, in times past and there are large remediation costs because you ha- also might have to invest quite a lot to put in infrastructure to make them economic because they're slightly further out of the way, there isn't a tube stop nearby. Um, and so if you if foreign buyers have driven up the price um, sufficiently to make those sites economic, um, then uh, that's very helpful. So even though across London as a whole, price, um, supply is not terribly responsive to price. In fact, you know it, we have, I think, the least um, elastic housing supply in the OECD um, from a price perspective. Um, there are sites where foreign buyers can help get you over the line. Okay. Um, so, so you mentioned that the estimates are uh, around 13% of all of London mm-hmm. are, are owned by foreign purchasers, up to 50%. Of, of new sales. Of new, of new sales, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, um, and the stock, by the way, so if you look at the stock question, um, we've been particularly interested in the question of empty homes because people really yeah. object when sort of the home's sitting empty. And so this is a situation where the, the concern is is that Somebody comes in from a foreign country, uh, they, they come in, they, they purchase a home, mm-hmm. and then they just let it sit vacant because they're essentially just transferring cash into a, a, a property, and then they're par- essentially parking the cash and laundering the money through through the, the house that they have no intention of living in yeah. unless something goes horribly wrong in the country that they live in. Yeah, I mean, and all, let's face it, it hasn't been a bad investment prospect, um, if you look at prior performance. Um so we looked at the question, this question of empty homes, and the best, the highest estimate we could find um, was that empty homes in London are just uh, just over five percent. Now, um, hmm. going back prior decades, there were decades in the twentieth century when that number was over eight percent. Um, you know, so we are by no means at the heights of where we have been in the past, and 
you've got to bear in mind that given that um, deaths, people moving and other sort of life factors will inevitably lead to some empty homes just from the normal working of a housing market, um, even if we got rid of every empty home in London, we're not, we're only, we would make a very, very tiny dent um, to the housing crisis, which is not to say that we shouldn't think about more sensible taxation. You know, I mean, we mm -hmm. have, we have on the one hand a stamp duty, which is a, um, tax which introduces terrible frictions into the market, but on the other hand we have council tax which is almost totally um, uh, not related to the value of the property and there are plenty of other jurisdictions which just charge a flat percentage rate on the value of the property on an annual basis and that provides a more, a, a more of an incentive for people not to leave homes empty and if they do choose to leave homes empty but pay a massive whack to you know, the council to pay for good stuff then you know, that's, that's less of a problem at least from my perspective. Um, the problem, of course, is getting from the current system to the next system because you will inevitably generate losers. So, so, so. Right. Um, so you say so the the vacancy rate is five percent over all of London. A little over, yeah, five percent. Yeah. Um, much is, higher in the centre. And and how much higher? So I would think that that this problem with foreign ownership as a vehicle for either laundering money or just investing, um, that might be. Uh, more of a problem in in some in, in the more expensive neighbourhoods. Yeah, it's definitely more. I don't think we have good data on any of the central boroughs as to how many homes are actually empty. It, it's clearly higher in the central um, in the central areas. People are much more likely to buy a Pieletaire, you know, in in Mayfair or, or South Kensington than they would be to buy one in Finchley, for example. And so the um, what you find in Finchley, on the other hand, is that a lot of homes which were originally built as family homes back in the 30s are now occupied by professionals who are sharing and would probably rather each have a flat and so, so they didn't have to worry about sharing the fridge with people. Mm -hmm. um, so, and again, I think that's the only, the most sensible thing, I think, to be said on that score is that um, if you were to have a more sensible system of taxation, you probably wouldn't have quite as much um, and uh, uh, you wouldn't have quite as many empty homes in some of those central boroughs, and you certainly wouldn't have as much political backlash because people would perceive that those foreign owners are sort of bearing more of their fair share, if you like. Yeah, okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the role that the Greenbelt is playing in the London housing crisis? So first of all, what is the Greenbelt, and how does the Greenbelt influence um, the housing crisis? Um, the Greenbelt basically prohibits um, housing in the countryside around large cities and around London in particular um, to prevent urban sprawl. And if you go back to the origins of the Greenbelt, um, it was originally a much sort of thinner area around London. It has expanded considerably by, 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 by a factor of something like eight times, I think, um, over since its inception back in the 1950s. Um, so it was originally conceived partly as a means of providing green space for Londoners to travel to and enjoy. Um, unfortunately, much of the current green belt is um, either uh, fields which are dedicated to monocrops, um, which are therefore sprayed with pesticides, uh, golf courses, which are also sprayed with pesticides in general. So more of Surrey is dedicated to golf courses than to housing. Um, and uh, by the way, those pest airborne pesticides are the number one killer of city dwellers in Europe. So um, green is a wonderful piece of branding, but it isn't necessarily everything it's stacked up to be. Now, by the way, sorry, you were going to say... So, so, so these, are, these are bands of uh, space surrounding the city mm -hmm. that are being protected to some degree. Uh, exactly. Where, where, the, where housing, building housing is not permitted... Correct. On this sort of belt of, of, of green space that surrounds the city. Yeah. And it's actually been expanding since it was initially established. So yes. the, the initial idea was to give people, it was sort of like Central Park exactly. in, in New York City, where the idea was that Londoners would have an opportunity to sort of escape out into the countryside. This was beneficial for health reasons. It was very nice to just sort of experience a day out in the country and get away from the, you know, the, 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 the city uh, and all the problems that you get in urban environments, and this is this is grad this is sort of created a limit on, on to how much the city can expand outward with yes, it's new housing. It's created a, a limit to how much it can expand outwards in a contiguous fashion. What's happened, mm -hmm. in fact, is that development has leapfrogged beyond the green belt, and so you now have these insane phenomena of people literally travelling two hours to get into London. Um, so if you look at a map of the commuting patterns into London, it basically spreads across the entire southeast and way up into the Midlands and um, 
some of the southwest and beyond. And so, so you know, from an environmental perspective, this is terrible because people are just tra traveling enormous and re relatively you know unfriendly distances. Um, it's causing them stress. It's the long commutes are unhealthy because it also leads to being sleep deprived. All of these unfortunate outcomes, which were clearly never intended by the generally quite well-meaning people who created the Green Belt. And um, Ebenezer Howard, who was sort of one of the, um, it was actually, the, the, sorry, the inventor of the, the Garden Cities movement, um, his original conception was that you have this Green Belt, but then you dot it with cities. Hmm. You, know, you dot it with cities with railway lines between them, and so you have this sort of endlessly sort of repeating pattern of um, verdant countryside with cities set into it. And, and, and so that would have been much more efficient, perhaps not as efficient as it could be given what we now know about spatial economics, but still much more efficient than what we currently have, which is a system where you know big chunks of the home counties have been protected from quote unquote the great unwashed, um, but it's had a lot of negative um, side effects. And you have people commuting in from beyond the green belt Absolutely. Yes, into commuter numbers. cities. Well, yeah. it's a good thing the trains are so cheap. <laughs> I should, um, I should mention the things you can do on the green belt. You can build roads. You can build. You can have golf courses. You can build large corrugated metal barns. You can build st stables. You can have a cemetery. The only thing you can't really do is houses for people. So it sort of reveals an interesting sense of priorities. Okay, but so why couldn't somebody uh, respond to this and say that this is just the trade-off that we have for protecting, um, for protecting, sort of nat for protecting nature. This is an environmental uh, issue. And that there are there are some there are some good reasons for why we don't want London to sort of just expand beyond the current the current boundaries that it has. We would be degrading sort of scenic scenic uh, wilderness yeah. that we do want to conserve and protect. You know, absolutely. I'm certainly not advocating endless urban sprawl. You know, I, the the valuable sort of um, the environmentally valuable and beautiful parts of the English countryside need to be protected because you know, as, as commuting gets cheaper, um, if you think we have long-distance commutes now, imagine what will happen when flying cars finally arrive. Um, you know, I do think it is sensible in some way to disincentivize just concreting over of endless fields. However, you, know, you look at parts of the English, the, the London Green Belt, the Metropolitan Green Belt, which are um, either former industrial land um, so, you know, would it really be a disaster if we built housing on those? Or they're sitting right next to a tube station. I mean, you know, almost any other city in the world would think we were just mad to have our urban containment boundary such that you can't build housing next to a, to, to a transit station. I'm really not sure that makes any sense, especially when that land is often a field of a monocrop sprayed with pesticides that you can't even walk on. Mm -hmm. Um, and often not that attractive either. So would it be possible to have a sensible reform? I would argue yes. Um, could you protect the vast majority of the Greenbelt um, and, and certainly all of the land which is valuable in any sense whatsoever and still get quite a lot more housing on it? Clearly, you could do that. Can you solve the politics? That's a trickier question. So we... Uh, if, if, um, we um, two years ago, we, we put out our first paper and we said, well, look, we, we found villages in the green belt that actually would like to approve some housing next to the village in their own green belt you know and uh, and the county said no because the county is the, the, well, the higher local authority is the body which sets um, the green belt uh, location and they refused to change it and we said well this is just nuts because well, well what, what, what was the justification they gave for that well, why would they oppose it strategic problem because the Greenbelt is quite a clever mechanism for everybody who is worried about housing estates near them to come together and say no change. And the, the line they draw in the sand is the easy line of no change ever, you know. And, and so they will fight to hold that line of we do not want to, to concede a single square inch um, as much as as much as they can. And that's the easiest way for them to coordinate, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, inevitably, any house that you build is a step in the direction of somebody else's house, and if they enjoy their fields, they will be worried that it's just salami tactics, and eventually your housing estate will get to them. And and what they're concerned about is development that will change the character of the town. Well, they they don't want more. They don't want people moving into the town. They don't want new architecture. Well, often it's people outside 
that particular settlement who don't want that settlement to grow any more in their direction, either because they live in a smaller village, you know, or because they have they live in a hamlet in the countryside and they don't want it to become part of a sprawling town. You know, quite honestly, there are often rational economic reasons why they may have that view. Um, people may pay more for a secluded country dwelling. Um, and it also goes down to sometimes quite unsavoury questions about their, their, you know, the preference of who they want their neighbours to be. Um, I could also see situations where they, they're content with the current situation and they just don't want to take a risk with, yeah. you know, their, their area changing in a way. It might change for, for the better, but it also might change for the worse. Yeah, and they just don't, they just don't want to roll the dice. People so, are rationally yeah. risk averse. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, but it's even CPRE, you know, the organization which has been the stalwart defender and very successful defender out of the Green Belt, um, because the Green Belt has expanded so much in area over, over the last three decades, um, is perfectly happy um, with building on parts of the Green Belt so long as it is led by local people. And it was just the legislation didn't effectively permit that because of the way that counties tended to implement it, um, or the higher authorities tended to implement it. Um, but CPRE will put forward South Milton in South Devon as a good example of how to build in not just Greenbelt, but an area of outstanding natural beauty. So this isn't just a plot of land that has never been assessed um, this is a plot of land that people have looked at and said this is a specifically beautiful piece of land and we're going to protect it in the national interest. And CBRA is happy to support the housing that was built there because the local villagers sat down and thought, well, we need more housing, this is how we want it to look, this is how we want it to be done, this is where we want it to be done, and we're happy with all of those, let's go ahead with this. And so, you know, even the most stalwart defender of the countryside is happy so long as it's driven from a bottom-up process. And so, from our perspective, it was just nuts that we were letting higher authorities prevent villages from saying, look, we, we'd like to build a few more houses next to the village. We'd like to permit a few more cottages or whatever it was. Um, so we said, look, that's an obvious and low-hanging fruit. And, and the government did, in fact, in the national planning policy, uh, national planning policy framework last year, change the rules so that a village can now um, approve housing in its own green belt through a neighbourhood development order. Um, of course, the, the government being the government, um, government being government, they uh, decided to put a slightly ill-defined requirement of "quote unquote" openness on it. So it has to, the development has to preserve the openness of the countryside, which in practice means that it, we took um, we took uh, a very enthusiastic village along to see an official and. Uh, they wanted to build more housing. He said to them, well, how many houses would you like to build? And they said, oh, well, 150 to 200, please. And he said, ah, well, given this requirement of openness, we thought we might do sort of max six to eight. So there's still a way to go on that reform, but it does sort of show the power of local-driven solutions. I suppose that sounds like a grim story. <laughs> um, I, if, if that's the encouraging bright spot, uh, I don't know. I don't necessarily know what to make of that. Well, bear in mind, it's almost unheard of for local people up to the, uh, hitherto. It had been almost unheard of for local people to actually say we would like more housing near us. Mm -hmm. So just having got to that step is a massive step forward, I would argue. And yet the result was only six to eight. Well, that's that's because <laughs> the reform was was you know um, restricted when it got it. But I think I think we'll get that on that. Okay. One. Okay. Well. Um, do you see, uh, given that there are all of these problems that we've been discussing, um, are there some simple simple solutions or simple changes that you think uh, would make sense or be an effective way of of trying to mitigate the crisis? Are there are there simple political steps that could be taken that that would potentially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's. The easiest and most powerful, we think, is is one we alluded to before, that if you simple, simply let local people on a street look at their street and think, OK, is there a graceful way that we could add more housing on this street in a way that would improve the street with strict design codes so we can be confident that they're not going to um, be contrary to the locals' preferences? I mean, some people might want you know, contemporary, high-quality architecture. Some people might want Victorian pastiche. I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to pass judgment. Um, but if the, if you give them the power to do that, and you uh, give them the power to give themselves permission to set the code um, and, and the permission to build, um, you can, in some parts of London, literally double or treble the value of their plot. Um, let's say you allow up to five or six storeys in height, um, you can easily increase the amount of buildable housing by a factor of five. Um, so 
there are profound financial incentives for people to come together and think, how can we improve this street? And you can do a whole range of things, because there's so much uh, cash to be generated off that. You can take, um, you can take payments for, uh, to improve the street itself. You can take payments to cover the local authority costs of additional infrastructure that it might need to provide. You can provide additional money for social housing so that you make sure that you bring the, um, the, people, who, the people who are only interested in social housing on board into your political coalition. And, um, and you can literally generate millions more houses within London alone. Um, so, and it doesn't, it doesn't, you could do that even without more legislation. Um, so th the beauty of that is that it's, it's local, it's organic, it starts slowly, it builds momentum, so you don't have it blocked immediately by any of the large vested interests out there. And there's almost nobody who objects to it. Um, so we think that's a potentially very powerful way forward. Certainly not all streets will go for it. Um, only a few streets will probably go for it to begin with. But when people see what can be done, um, we've, you know, we've, we've done enough work to be convinced that there will be a lot of interest over time. So what are some of the steps that could be taken to encourage that sort of development? It basically requires a change in policy, either by the, um, the borough in London or by the, the mayor could theoretically institute it through the London plan. That only gets changed once every five years, though. Um, or it could be done at national level um, by the ministry. And what would the ch what would these changes involve? What would they actually be? So either, so you can simply write it as a planning policy. You can write it as a presumption that if two-thirds of the residents on the street come forward, submit a planning application specifying a design code and what they want to do, that you will grant it unless there's sort of overriding reasons against it. Um, and you could write that tomorrow in most boroughs. There's no reason why you couldn't. Now, there's a slight difficulty because it comes back to this coordination problem that, um, you know, the those who are most resistant to change ch tend to shout the loudest and, and, and they, they have a very easy coordination point about zero change ever. Um, and also boroughs are not incentivized to really allow more housing um, because I mean, we've spoken to councils that are actually actively opposed to housing that is suitable for older people because they're worried about the care costs that they will then incur. So underlying all of this is a massive incentive problem. Um, which you don't see in places like Switzerland. And Switzerland, for example, outside the major cities, has managed to maintain housing at pretty much the same level of affordability for decades because the incentives for um, the local authorities to build are much stronger. Which political actors do you think would be most suited to introducing this kind of a change? Do you think that the mayor would have a, an easier time getting, getting this kind of a change made? So our hypothesis, I don't know is the short answer, mm -hmm. our hypothesis is, and we do have some councils that are very open-minded about this, so it may well be tried at a, you know, at a single council level first, and frankly that may, be, that may be in some way easier because you're doing a sort of local trial and the, yeah. the, the damage is limited if something right. unforeseeable happens. But um, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that Sam Jima, who briefly stood as a Tory leadership candidate, specifically endorsed this policy. Sadly, he is now um, no longer competing, but at least... Not because of endorsing this housing uh, policy. Hopefully not, no. Uh, but <laughs> uh, in fact, he got some compliments from people within other campaigns for that specific policy, which is also pretty encouraging. So that, that at least gives us some hope that at a national level there is interest in this. Um, and it, the national government captures all of the uh, externalities, essentially. So they, if they can get house building increased without suffering electorally for it, um, they get not only the immediate benefits of a construction boom, which might be quite helpful depending on what the economic outlook turns out to be, but they also get the sort of medium-term benefit of um, increased access to opportunity, increased growth, increased wages from the fixing the sort of labour mobility problems that we talked about earlier. Um, now, if it's a Conservative government, they may get increased home ownership, which they, they seem to be very keen on. If it's a Labour government, they can extract some of this cash I was talking about to fund more social housing. So they may also see that as a positive. Um, it's, it's really just a question, we think, of tweaking the package until it's framed in such a way that it really appeals to the value of that government and, and then just building enough momentum behind it to rise above the general noise level. Because this stuff is quite complicated um, in terms of all of the interactions and all the stakeholders that are going on. And there are large groups of people who think that their answer is the answer, despite the fact in some cases that that campaign has been pushing for exactly the same answer for 50 years and it's got worse. So, um, you know, Einstein's definition of madness, as I'm sure you remember, um, is not encouraging in that respect. 
so just breaking through the general noise level is, is one of the other key challenges um, that we face. Mm-hmm. So it would be, I, I suppose, incredibly helpful if you could actually uh, have a, a neighborhood do this, demonstrate that that if you allow us, uh, you know, these sing- these smaller neighborhood units to have more control over over housing permissions and planning, this actually could generate could generate benefits. And there actually, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that there actually there actually is a a success story. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, they had to get permission from the council, of course. You can guarantee mm-hmm. that if they'd been able to give themselves permission, it wouldn't have taken them five years to do it. Um, so that, to me, is the sort of clearest example. Um, but we're also talking with a range of neighbourhood groups because a neighbourhood forum um, is uh, it's a, it's a new uh, feature of English planning since the 2011 Localism Act. So it's, it's effectively a small area within a council which can write its own neighbourhood plan and can actually grant a neighbourhood development order which gives planning permissions. So as those get smaller, it becomes much easier for them to coordinate and to agree. So we're in discussions with a few of those to see if they're interested. I mean, often people get involved in this, but it's slightly this reason. We, we, you know, there are lots of people out there who, lots of families, for example, who are stuck in a dwelling which is far smaller than they need, that they need desperately another bedroom for, 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 for for their kids, you know, they may need another bedroom for a pe- an elderly parent who wants to move in with them, or ideally a, a granny flat or something like that. So there's an increasing body of people who would really love to be able to extend in one way or another. And so I'm hopeful we may be able to have a proof of concept through one of them. Paradoxically, in this country, it turns out to be easier to amend national planning policy than it is to get a planning permission. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a race to see um, what happens first, basically. Interesting. Well... Fingers will, will remain crossed. Thank you. Um, well, I didn't have any other questions for you, John. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to you wanted to speak about? No, well, I, I'd like to throw out one sort of comment, uh, and um, given your expertise in, in political economy, I, what. What sort of increasingly struck us, I think, is that the Overton window is not necessarily the most helpful way of thinking about the housing crisis because there's such a sort of narrow set of reforms that could actually work once you take into account all of the um, the different stakeholders and the blocking the veto players and the others out there. I would actually suggest the better metaphor is the exhaust vent of the Death Star, and that's what we're trying to hit. And so, so what we're trying to do is reduce the number of people out there in housing who are trying to push energetically push the Overton window in the opposite direction to the other group of people. All the while, the exhaust vent is somewhere in the middle distance, and we actually need to coordinate everybody to get over there. Interesting analogy. Um, I, well, I, I hope you stay on target with that. Thank you. Um, it was wonderful to have you on the podcast, John. My pleasure. Um, Thank you. I'm very curious to see how to see whether any of the, the the things that your organizations are proposing wind up wind up working. I and I really hope that they do. Thank you. <laughs>